This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. Well, good morning. We are taking a break this week from the First Peter sermon series. And if you have children, as a son, if you have children going to children's church, now's the time for them to go in the back, follow Bart and Joe Ranch as they walk out the doors there. Uh, we are taking a break from First Peter this morning uh, as Cardwells have, have uh, been going through Alicia's uh, surgery this week. So I'm glad to stand before you this morning and to continue uh, something of an ad hoc series. If you recall, uh, over the last year or so, we've worked our way through Ephesians chapter 1 and part of Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, now we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. You may recall that Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1 is a great benediction. It's a great benediction, a cascading doxology to the blessed triune God, followed in Ephesians 1 by a great intercession, a great intercession, a prayer of Paul for spiritual enlightenment from the triune God. And then in Ephesians 2, Paul instructs us on the nature of salvation. On the nature of salvation. So in verses 1, to, 1 through 10, we can think of those verses as the nature of individual salvation. Of individual salvation. In verses 1 through 3, Paul tells each of us that uncomfortable truth that we are by nature dead in sin. We are by nature dead in sin. But Paul writes those two most important words in the world in verse 4. Though we are dead in sin... But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loves us, and because of his immeasurable grace towards sinners, he saves us in Jesus Christ. And the, the rest of chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, tell us that in Jesus Christ, dead sinners are made alive. That in Jesus Christ, condemned sinners become exalted saints. That in Jesus Christ, enslaved sinners are set free from the bondage and condemnation of sin. So Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10, teaches us that sinners are saved in Jesus Christ. Friend, are you trusting in Jesus Christ this morning? Have you gone to him for salvation? Do you know the rich mercy and the great love and the immeasurable grace of God in Jesus Christ? Well, if verses 1 to 10 describe our individual salvation... Then verses 11 through 22 describe our corporate salvation. Our corporate salvation. And the message of these verses is found in the summary passage of verse 22. Verse 22, in Jesus Christ, saints are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. In Jesus Christ, saints are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So now let us turn and read from God's word in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Hear God's word. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope 
and without God in the world. But now, in Jesus Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also are being built together into a dwelling place by God, for God, by the Spirit. Praise God for his word. We will consider these 12 verses this morning under three headings. The three headings are in your bulletin. You'll find them in the, uh, in the insert. Uh, in verses 11 through 12, Paul calls us to remember, to remember life apart from God. Verses 1, 11 through 12, Paul calls us to remember life apart from God. And in verses 13 through 18, Paul explains reconciliation with God. He tells us how we are reconciled with God. And in verses 19 through 22, Paul describes the raising, the raising of the dwelling place of God. Let's pray and let's ask God to be with us this morning. Pray with me. God in heaven, what we know not, teach us. Teach us to remember our condition apart from you and the mercy that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. What we have not, give us. Give us a greater joy and a deeper humility for the work that you have done to reconcile us to yourself. And what we are not, make us. Raise us together into a dwelling place for you, O God, by your Holy Spirit, and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, first, Paul calls us to remember. Paul calls us to remember. Verse 11 begins with therefore. And if you spend any time in church, you know what I'm about to say. We always need to ask the question, what is the therefore? Therefore. That's right. The therefore, in this verse, connects verses 11 through 12 back to verses 1 through 10. So since God has saved you in Jesus Christ, therefore, remember. Remember. And specifically, Paul wants us to remember that you, Christian, were at one time hopeless and without God in the world. You were at one time hopeless and without God in the world. In these particular verses, Paul appeals to redemptive history, to that storyline from the Old Testament to the New, to contrast how the Gentiles 
were hopeless apart from God because the Gentiles were not part of God's covenant people of Israel. The Gentiles had reminder after reminder how they were not part of the people of God. Gentiles were called the uncircumcision, those without the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. The Gentiles were not subjects of the Mosaic law covenant, that gracious covenant that begins with God declaring to Israel in Exodus 20, I am the Lord, your God. The Gentiles were not subject to that. That's not to say they had no knowledge of God's moral standards. Paul addresses that in Romans 1 and Romans 2. But the Gentiles were particularly outside the authority of the covenant. Those ceremonial and civil laws of the commonwealth of Israel that were expressly meant to keep Israel distinct as a people, set apart from the Gentiles, set apart for God. So here we we might think of the food laws of Leviticus or the temple regulations in Deuteronomy. We know from other historical records that the Gentiles had a separate and distinct courtyard in the temple compound, and at the entrance, and it was the most far off uh, of, of, that, uh, of the compound, and in the entrance into the rest of the compound, there, there was a reminder, a posted sign that hung indicating death would come to any Gentile who dare enter further into the temple. The Gentiles were without hope, and they were without God in the world. That's not to say they didn't have their idols. That's not to say they didn't have their own little g-gods, but they were without God, the one true and living God. They were without God and without hope in the world because they were cast out. They were far off from God, their creator. And really underlying this contrast is between Jew and Gentile is the greater reality that we should all remember. The reality that led to the division of Jew and Gentile in the first place. Sin. Sin ruptures the relationship between God and man. The hostility and division between Jew and Gentile only existed because their first parents, Adam and Eve, our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned and ruptured relationship with God, being cast out, sent far off from the dwelling place of God, the Garden of Eden. And how quickly we see in Scripture that sin, that rebellion against God, ruptures relationship between those made in God's image. We see this clearly in Genesis chapter 4 when, when one son of Adam, Cain, kills his brother Abel. Instead of being fruitful and multiplying, God's image bearers are fruitless and destructive. And oh, how we can testify to the countless ways in which sin separates us, not just from God, but from persons in our lives. The conflict, the disunity, the anger, the bitterness that marks so many relationships between husband and wife between parent and child, between family members, friends, citizens, nations. The conflict and disunity that stares us right in the face, that tells us of our sin. One man once said the most empirically verifiable Christian doctrine, but maybe the most denied, is sin. We all see it. We all know it. 
And perhaps the greatest evidence of our rebellion against God and the disruption that sin brings in our relationships is death itself. What is death but the unnatural separation of body and soul? Have you ever considered why Jesus wept in John 11.35? Most of us know that is the shortest verse in the Bible. It simply says, Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep even knowing that he would raise Lazarus from the dead? I suppose it's because in that moment, Jesus felt the pain. Felt the pain and the loss of his friend Lazarus. He felt the painful effect of sin, the tearing apart of the relation with a loved one. And for that moment, perhaps, if I can say this with all reverence, perhaps Jesus was tempted with hopelessness, as you and I are tempted with hopelessness in the face of death. From Genesis chapter 3 to this very day, sin leaves us hopeless and without God in the world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you remember? Do you remember what it was like to be hopeless and without God in the world? How much compassion should we show to those poor souls, those image bearers of God, who are even now hopeless and without God in the world? What humility should work in us as we remember our condition before God. But did you notice, did you notice in verse 12, the ray of hope that shines into our hopelessness? Paul calls us to remember life without hope and without God in the world. A time when we were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Embedded in this call to remember life apart from God is the reminder that God has been on a redemption mission since sin entered the world. We may have been hopeless and without God in the world because of our sin, but God was at work through his covenant promises to bring hope to the world. Do you hear the march of redemptive history in these words of Paul? Remember, brothers and sisters, how Adam and Eve must have felt when they were banished from God's presence. But what hope they had in the promises of God in Genesis 3.15. Imagine how hopeless Noah and his families must have felt in the midst of a wicked generation. When the rains came and the waters rose and they were stuck on that ark. But what hope they had in the promise that God would save in Genesis 9. Or Abraham, when he was set out for that far country, hoping in the promises of God. Or Moses and David, the prophets and the faithful remnant. From the sinful beginning, of, uh, of this day, from the sinful beginning to this very day, our world is dark and hopeless, estranged from God, groaning under the weight of sin, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. But Paul, but Paul speaks to us 
a better word in verse 13. Now, but now, in Jesus Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were once far off have been brought near by the new covenant of promise. All of God's covenant promises find their fulfillment, their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And you who were at one time hopeless and without God in the world have now been brought near through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you remember? Do you remember the gospel joy when you were transferred from the domain of darkness into his marvelous light? Do you remember the gospel hope that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ? Do you remember the gospel love that gave the only begotten Son and that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life? Do you remember? This is the good news, the great hope that we have to share with a hopeless world. This is the promise of God that we have to share with a world opposed to God. We sung of it. Because the sinless Savior died, your sinful soul is counted free. And if you're here this morning, friend, and you have not hid your life in Christ on high, by faith, go to Him. Go to Him now, for He alone can give you hope. He alone can bring you back to God. Well, in these verses, Paul calls us to remember, to remember life apart from God and to remember God's gracious work to save us, to reconcile us to himself. So now let us turn turn and consider the second point, reconciled, reconciled. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to to those who were near. For through him, we both had access in one spirit to the Father. We see in these verses that the blood of Jesus Christ reconciles us to God and reconciles us to each other. It reconciles us to God and reconciles us to each other. That Jesus Christ himself is the peace we need to bring us to God and to bring us to each other. First, notice that we are reconciled to God. We're reconciled to God. The blood of Christ brings us near to who? It brings us near to God. Jesus Christ himself is our peace, that he might reconcile us to God, verse 16. For through him we have access in one spirit to God the Father, verse 17. The fundamental problem for both Jew and Gentile was separation from God. The fundamental problem for you and me is separation from God. Notice that Paul repeatedly refers to how Jesus brings us both to God. 
The commonwealth of Israel had the covenant promises of God, which were a sure and certain foundation of hope for all believing Israel. But those covenant promises had a direction. They had a purpose. They had an end to which they pointed. And what Paul calls the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, which I take as the entire law covenant scheme, was necessary in God's redemptive plan, but it was never meant to be sufficient in God's redemptive plan. The law was given through Moses to teach us of God's righteousness and to teach Jew and Gentile the need for God to do what the law, weakened by the flesh, could never do. As Paul wrote in Romans 8, God sent forth his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled to abolish the law of commandments expressed in ordinances and institute in himself a new covenant by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived to reconcile us to God, perfectly obeying all of the law's commands for us. Jesus Christ died to reconcile us to God, bearing the condemnation that we all deserve and serving as that all-sufficient, sinless sacrifice required by the law and making a new covenant in his blood. And Jesus Christ lives again, right now, to reconcile us to God, resurrected from the dead, showing that his life and death fulfilled all the law's, all the law's demands and is acceptable in the sight of God. Jesus Christ makes peace with God for all the people who trust in him. Secondly, we see that we are reconciled to each other through reconciliation to God. As we are being reconciled to God, we are actually reconciled to one another. Reconciled to one another. Verse 14, Paul says, the blood of Jesus Christ has made us both one. Made us both one. In verse 15, in Christ, one new man is created in place of the two. In verse 16, the blood of Christ reconciles us both to God in one body. So as we are reconciled to God in Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to each other in Jesus Christ. Paul says we are one new man in Jesus Christ. One new man in Jesus Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean there are no differences, in fact, between ethnicities or genders or stations of life. This does not mean that our unique identities are erased when we become Christians. Rather, this means that we are no, long, no longer fundamentally identified by those differences but rather our fundamental identity is in Jesus Christ. And if in Jesus Christ, then we are fundamentally united as one new man in Christ. Brothers and sisters, therefore, let us not seek to continually differentiate and segment ourselves from each other, but rather let us seek unity and common identity in Jesus Christ. Well, Paul says we are one body in Jesus Christ. Literally, elsewhere, Paul says we are the body of Christ. So here he says we are one body in Jesus Christ. Our reconciliation to each other in Christ means that you are not your own, beloved, 
but that you belong to other Christians. You are not your own, but you belong to other Christians. It means that you are to exercise your particular spiritual gifts in the body. In the body, to be the arms and hands, the legs and feet, the eyes, the ears, the mouth. It means, Christian, that you cannot survive apart from the body of Christ. You cannot survive as a Christian apart from the body of Christ. For what finger thrived when cut off of its hand? What eye could see when plucked from its socket? Which foot could run when cut off from its leg? We need each other. And by God's grace, we have each other in the body of Jesus Christ. And did you notice that the peace that was won for us, the peace that brought us together as one new man and as one body, that peace was won through conflict. The peace was won through conflict. Jesus Christ killed the hostility between you and God and between you and each other. He killed it by bearing that hostility on an instrument of torture and of death. He killed the hostility by bearing it on the cross. I fear that sometimes, brothers and sisters, we forget that Christ killed the hostility between us. He killed the hostility between us. And even more, he purchased love and joy and peace and all the fruit of the Spirit for us. So with God's help, we can set aside hostility and harshness and pursue peace with one another. If it is possible on your part, brothers and sisters, live at peace with all people because Jesus Christ has killed the hostility. Jesus Christ is our peace, reconciling us to God, reconciling us to each other. And we see next that God is raising for himself a dwelling place, raising for himself a dwelling place, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself being its cornerstone. Read with me in verses 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So then, Paul says, since you have been reconciled to God and to each other, God is building a dwelling place for himself in Christ through the Spirit. Since you're reconciled to God and to each other, God is building a dwelling place for himself. Notice the work of the Trinity. Did you see it? Uh, Ephesians is full of Trinitarian reference, and it's no difference here. Father, Son, Spirit, all actively at work in your redemption, in building together this dwelling place 
and arguably even in the three metaphors that Paul uses to describe that dwelling place. Paul describes this dwelling place as a kingdom, as a household, and as a temple. As a kingdom, as a household, and as a temple. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are citizens in the kingdom of God. Citizens in the kingdom of God. Do you remember how John the Baptist, he shows up in Matthew 3, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Is near. And how does Jesus start his ministry after his baptism and temptation in Matthew chapter 4? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At hand. Jesus Christ is the king of the kingdom. And in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is at hand. And whoever obeys the command of the king, that is to repent and to believe, is a fellow citizen, a saint in the kingdom of God. Perhaps we need to be reminded that this local church is but an embassy of the kingdom. It is but an embassy of the kingdom. We don't have the time this morning to take a deep dive on this matter, but the, the local church is described in Scripture as an embassy, an outpost of the kingdom of God. It is not itself the kingdom of God. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that it, the Roman Catholic Church, is the visible kingdom of God on earth. And Protestants have been saying for 500 years now, no, that's not true at all. So brothers and sisters, we need to be careful and attentive to love and to labor for the good of this local church. But we need never forget that this local church is not the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God can advance apart from this local church. Lest we begin to think too highly of ourselves. Too highly of ourselves. And fail to recognize the good kingdom work performed by other faithful local churches. We are citizens, fellow citizens of the kingdom, sent out as ambassadors of the king from this embassy of the kingdom to announce to the world that the king has come once to save you from your sins and will come again to judge you for your sins. And praise the Lord for every church of Christ that is about that kingdom work. Well, we are citizens in a kingdom, and we are members of a household. We are members of a household. Brothers and sisters, we have God as our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ as our elder brother, and the church as our family. We see this in several places in Scripture, but clearly uh, we see it in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Hebrews 2, 10 and 11, where the author of Hebrews teaches us that the Father sent the Son so that the Son might suffer And bring many sons to glory. And then this stunning verse. Jesus did all of this. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them. To call you and me brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed to call you a brother and sister. And if Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters then why should we be ashamed to call each other brothers and sisters? 
I don't necessarily mean that literally, but perhaps the way we address one another does reflect and even shape the way that we think and the way that we feel about one another. We should be actively cultivating brotherly love and affection for each other because God is our Father and the Lord Jesus is our brother and we are brothers and sisters living by the Spirit as members in the household of God. We are citizens in the kingdom, we are members of the household of God and we are priests in the temple of God. Priests in the temple of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is our great high priest, we sung earlier. He offered a once and for all sacrifice uh, for our sins, granting each one of us individually access to God in him by the Spirit indwelling within us. You are temples. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says. But here, here, what Paul has in mind is that we are collectively a temple unto the Lord. We are a collective royal priesthood, Peter says, offering spiritual sacrifices unto God. And as a royal priesthood, we corporately minister to one another. As we exercise our spiritual gifts in the church, as we particularly teach God's word to one another, as we pray for one another, as we show hospitality to one another, and even as we do every Sunday here, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs one to another. We are ministers, priests to each other, and we are priests to the world. We declare to the world that the temple of God is here, that the sacrifice of sin can be found here, that the fellowship of God's people can be found here. And so we teach God's word to the world, and we pray for the world, and we show hospitality and love for our neighbors in the world. God's dwelling place on the earth is in the church, with its citizens and members and priests, and God's dwelling place is on the firm foundation of the apostles and prophets, those men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit and laid down the witness to Jesus Christ in his excellent word. Brothers and sisters, what more can God say than to you he has said in the Bible? As several historic confessions put it, the Bible is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. All scripture is a testimony to Christ, the cornerstone, who is himself the focus of all divine Revelation. And therefore, brothers and sisters, God's word, the Bible, is the foundation upon which God raises his dwelling place by the Spirit, with Jesus Christ as its cornerstone. Never let the scriptures be removed as the cornerstone of the dwelling place of God in his church. Well, we should conclude. Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22 calls us to remember life apart from God and to remember the work of God on our behalf. And as we remember, beloved, we are to be about the worship and the work of making disciples of all nations, being ministers of reconciliation between God and man, even as we await that day when the kingdoms of this world will finally become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ.
And on that day, we will gather together around that great family banquet table for a feast with our elder brother Jesus, together with brothers and sisters from every nation and from every generation, raised together in that heavenly temple in the new Jerusalem, where he will be our God and we will be his people forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Father, we remember this morning our dire condition apart from you. We remember that we were enslaved to sin, condemned in sin, dead in sin. And we remember this morning the great reconciliation that you accomplished for us in Jesus Christ, our Prince of Peace, who killed the hostility between you and your people on the cross. By his blood we are reconciled, O God, and by your spirit you are raising up a dwelling place for yourself. So work in us by your spirit to be faithful citizens of your kingdom, members of your household, and priests in your temple. Do that now, today, and until that day we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.